You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Stephen Kistler, research fellow in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, March 23rd. Dr. Kistler, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, yeah, just looking forward to speaking with you all. Um, I mentioned in the intro that uh, I'm happy to talk about the BA2 wave. Um, I recognize that it's not really a wave at this point yet in the US, but hopefully we can dig into a little bit more um, what things might look like while recognizing that there's still a ton of uncertainty. Great, thank you. And uh, it's been a while, so might be a little rusty with this, but we'll get right back in the saddle. Um, <laughs> all right, looks like we have a couple questions already. Uh, first question, Hi, thank you so much, Stephen. Um, just wanted to, and this was not specifically on your list of, of things that you said you could talk about today, so sorry if it's uh, too off subject, uh, let me know if it is, but I just was wondering if you had any reaction to the news that Moderna is seeking authorization for children under the age of six, uh, what you thought of that and um, any thoughts you could share. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as always, I'm uh, most excited to just see what the data look like. Um, and uh, I know that there's there's more data that's been collected that I haven't yet seen, um, but I think it's very promising. I know that one of the things that especially parents of young kids um, have really been waiting for is exactly this authorization for the youngest age groups. Um, I do think that it, uh, you know, assuming that the safety and efficacy holds up well in that age group and is durable over time, um, that uh, that it would be great to have these vaccines available for young kids. Um, I think, as I've mentioned before in uh, in previous calls, but I think it bears mentioning again now that um, I think it's also to bear in mind the difference between um, approvals and recommendations. I think again, as long as the safety and efficacy do continue to hold up, um, I'm a very strong advocate for uh, for approving vaccines for the youngest age groups. Um, I think that there's a much broader conversation then that needs to be had about recommendations for kids in those youngest age groups, um, just given that their risk profile from COVID-19 just differs so much from older adults. Um, but I do think, especially having those vaccines available for kids um, who have uh, immune conditions that might not allow them to mount a good immune response to COVID-19. I think the vaccines could help in some of those cases um, who have other sorts of respiratory conditions. Um, I think there are a lot of kids who could really benefit from these vaccines, not to mention their families as well. Um, so I see it as, as a great step um, in a good direction and I'm excited to see more. Just if I could, quick follow up on that is, I mean, it says it's 43.7% efficacy in children six to months to two years old and, and then just 37.5 in two to six. Is that disappointing or surprising in any way that the numbers are, are not higher. I mean, in adults, they were, it was, it was much higher levels of efficacy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to compare, um, you know, the, the statistics on efficacy perfectly from one point in an epidemic to another, but um, it's not surprising to me that, that there would be differences here for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that the, um, the, the immune systems in young kids differ hugely from the immune systems in older adults. Um, but in my mind, probably the biggest thing is that the, the size of the dose differs quite a bit too. Um, and so uh, with smaller doses in young kids, you might expect a smaller immune response as well. Um, so I'm not surprised. Um, but that said, you know, the, the, the efficacy, while, while it doesn't sound great, is actually, you know, roughly in line with the efficacy that we sometimes see from the seasonal flu vaccine. Um, and that also can be very helpful for young kids uh, to keep them from getting really sick from the flu. Um, so I think that there is precedent for using vaccines of about this efficacy in young kids. Um, and while, of course, you know, I would love to see 100% efficacy in all of the vaccines that we have available, I do still think it's high enough to be pretty useful. Thank you so much. 
Uh, next question. Hi, thank you so much for taking my question. I do have a few, and that's also piggybacking off of uh, the Moderna question that was just asked. Um, so these, uh, this phase three trial was done during the uh, recent Omicron wave. Um, do you think that uh, this vaccine could protect young children against BA2? I guess, you know, is there any reason to believe that it wouldn't? Um. I, in my mind, no. I mean, it seems like um, BA2 and uh, previous subvariants of Omicron, BA1 um, and its sublineages, uh, have, they interact with the human immune system in pretty similar ways. And so people who have been previously vaccinated or previously infected um, seem to fare pretty similarly um, when exposed to BA2 or BA1. So my expectation is that even though the, the vaccine trials were done for uh, the, the, the major Omicron wave in the US that we should see pretty similar results for BA2. Great, thank you. And then, I mean, when do you think that we would see uh, the vaccines available for young children uh, and elementary school children? And, and when would we see a surge of BA2? I guess the question would be, you know, will children get access to these vaccines before the surge happens? Right. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, um, you know, at this point, uh, the vaccines could be made available to those younger age groups in pretty short order. Um, this is pretty different than the initial rollout of the vaccine. Um, uh, it's simply because it's, uh, it is essentially the same vaccine, um, just in different doses. And, uh, and so the, the vaccine is available, it's been produced in high quantities, um, it's fairly widely distributed right now. So I think, you know, pending approval, it's difficult to say how long that might take, but I think that that could be pushed forward pretty quickly. Um, ideally within the next couple of weeks, probably, um, especially if we're expecting a surge from BA2, I think that we could see approval um, for young kids to, to get the Moderna vaccine pretty, pretty soon. Um, the question of, of if and when a surge is coming and, and how large is, uh, is also very much open. Um, I know that we've seen major surges that, uh, that are dominated by BA2 across much of Europe. Um, but in contrast, for example, uh, in South Africa, uh, we saw a major BA1 wave. You know, that's where they saw the Omicron wave first. Um, and now there's uh, a lot of circulation of BA2, but it hasn't really caused um, an increase in cases so much as it sort of lengthened the decline and given that epidemic a very long tail. And I think it's not totally clear what's going to happen in the US. Um, in many ways, our experience with Omicron, um, there, there are some similarities between both Europe and South Africa in terms of um, our vaccination rates are maybe a little bit closer to those in Europe. Um, but we also did see a very intense BA1 wave. And to the extent that that gives us protection against BA2, we might see dynamics somewhat more similar to what's happening in South Africa as well. So all of that is to say that I do think that it's possible to get um, approval of the vaccines for these youngest age groups um, soon and probably soon enough to deal with whatever BA2 is going to throw at us in the coming weeks. Um, but that said, I, I, I'm, I'm still not totally convinced that we're going to see a major surge from BA2 uh, and, yeah, we'll just have to see on that. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. Hey there, um, thank you. Um, so I have a question that's maybe a bit farther out than just whatever might be happening with BA2. Um, so I guess kind of into the future, there's gonna be these waves and maybe they'll be seasonal and like how damaging they are will 
kind of be influenced by things like, you know, viral evolution and, and it, like potential waning. But I guess like one thing that struck me so far is that even between waves, we've never actually gotten down to like really low levels, like, I don't know, below 10,000 cases a day or something like that. And, and so I'm just wondering, like, what do you, what do you think like might the quiet periods look like going forward? Is it just that we need like a bit more experience with the virus before we can get to low levels or just, or is it possible that there's just some sort of like a persistent plateau outside the waves that just kind of like slowly ticks along and causes some amount of, I don't know, morbidity and mortality? Yeah. You know, it's, um, I, I really appreciate this question a lot. It's uh, it's hard to say um, because this virus is in many ways different from um, just about anything that we've seen previously. Um, so I can give a couple of examples, right? I mean, it, so, so one of course is flu where we have seasonal outbreaks, but then it reduces to very low levels in much of the US um, during the summertime. Um, and that's, that's reflected across most temperate regions of the globe. Um, and so one possible future that I could envision is that um, with repeated exposures to SARS-CoV-2, um, we'll essentially reach a similar equilibrium point uh, where we have large outbreaks potentially in the winter season or in times when people crowd indoors um, and, uh, and substantially lower cases in the summer. Basically, just once it sort of reaches that, um, that, that sort of cycle, um, where uh, it's depleting, it's basically infecting a lot of partially susceptible people during the winter, but then that provides enough immunity to sort of get us through the summer. But you know, one reason why that might not be the case is because SARS-CoV-2 is just so incredibly infectious, especially with the rise of Omicron. Um, and so uh, because of that, it may well differ from the dynamics of flu where we do see persistent spread over the summer. Um, the other example that I always think about when it comes to uh, highly infectious respiratory viruses is, is measles. Um, and with measles, we also tend to see um, really significant outbreaks, uh, in, at least in the pre-vaccination era. We saw major outbreaks in the wintertime, um, and they tended to sort of subside as well outside of the winter. But that's also different because measles gives you much longer lasting immunity, it seems, than infection with SARS-CoV-2 does. So generally, you know, young kids would get measles, but then they'd be pretty much protected from reinfection for the rest of their life. SARS-CoV-2 is different because we can, of course, continue to get reinfected by it. So in my mind, the most likely scenario is that we're going to settle into a seasonal pattern of SARS-CoV-2 spread where it's going to be um, dominate probably in winter months um, in temperate regions of the globe, um, but that actually we're not going to get quite down to those low levels of spread over the summer and that there will be a lot of variation, but it won't be quite like flu where there's almost none of it, that we're going to kind of be dealing with this at some level at all times in the year. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, next question. I just wanted uh, to uh, get some idea, given all the unknowns, what you expect if there is a surge for this to look like among the various populations in the United States, the, uh, the vaccinated pop, the fully vaccinated population, the partially vaccinated, the unvaccinated, the elderly versus the young. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, I mean, in many ways, I think that it will likely resemble our experience with COVID-19 up until this point. Um, one of the key things with Omicron, and this goes for BA2 as well as all other um, sublineages of Omicron, uh, is that a, a booster dose, um, so a third dose of an mRNA vaccine or uh, an mRNA vaccine on top of a Johnson & Johnson, if that's what you received before, um, really goes a long way towards helping protect you um, from symptomatic disease and especially from severe disease. 
Um, so I think that uh, probably the um, the most the, the biggest delineation that I imagine seeing is that people who are boosted will probably fare better than people who are unboosted, um, and I think that that's probably the biggest split point. Um, we're going to continue to see, I imagine, uh, you know, the the standard sort of increase in uh, in severity and the likelihood of hospitalization, for example, um, and even the mortality rate uh, that goes up substantially um, with older age groups. Um, but it still seems to be the case that even now, you know, a few months after a lot of especially the older age groups have gotten their boosters, that a vaccinated and boosted person over the age of 75, their risk is um, probably on the order, if not lower than a unvaccinated 20-year-old. Um, you know, um, and so that's good, and in many cases might be even better. Um, so I think that the most important thing is that even though uh, if you control for everything, the risk still increases substantially with age, that with vaccination and boosting, um, even the oldest members of our society are, um, are pretty well protected, and it brings the risk from COVID-19 back in line with a lot of other risks that we tend to face or faced in the pre-COVID area from other pre-COVID um, time with other infectious diseases. Hope that helps a little bit. I think, I mean, there's there's so many different subgroups and populations to think about here. I mean, there's um, people are returning to work. I think that the uh, the question of um, there, gosh, it's it's it's. I think it's beyond the scope of this call for me to sort of like be able to break down all of the issues. You know, the breakdown by um, racial and ethnic groups, the breakdown by socioeconomic groups, um, and, and specific subgroups of people. Um, who may be immunocompromised, where COVID-19 still poses a big risk, um, young kids who still have not been uh, vaccinated. Um, I think there are a lot of really important things to distinguish there, but um, basically, if I don't go into all of the details with those, it's not that they don't matter, but that I think some of the biggest differences that we're going to see is between boosted, unboosted, and then continuing to see this gradient by age. Sorry, I, I remuted myself. I'm all set. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for doing this. Um, so you mentioned when talking about the BA2 wave, potential wave about how there is a lot of uncertainty. And I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through the, the factors that sort of lead into that and the, the different variables that you're considering when trying to you know look ahead and figure out how severe a potential wave might be. Yeah, thanks. Um, so the variables I, I usually look at um, when making sort of these uh, forward-looking projections, I guess, um, is first the immunity in the population as a whole. Um, so I am a modeler. Um, I use models to try to understand what might happen next, but oftentimes the best thing that we can do is compare what's happening now with what has already happened in other places that are similar to us. So that that um, that reflects some of the things that I was mentioning earlier about the experience in Europe versus the experience in South Africa. Um, so when looking at what's happening in the US, um, one of the things that I bear in mind when trying to compare our experience with other countries um, is that we have decent vaccination rates, although certainly lower than um, many of the more highly vaccinated countries in, in Europe, especially. Um, but we have also had a lot of previous transmission um, of Delta, of Omicron, and of even um, SARS-CoV-2 prior to those variants. So all of that is contributing to actually quite a bit of population immunity. 
Um, and so the more immunity we have in a population, and especially the more immunity we have to variants that are related to the thing that's currently circulating, um, the less chance that I see of a major surge. Uh, the second major thing is really just where we are in the year. Uh, so seasonality is um, certainly just a factor among many that's driving the spread of SARS-CoV-2. But I think that one of the things that might help us as we're going into this next surge is that we're entering the spring, which seems to be sort of a low time of circulation for SARS-CoV-2 across the US. In some parts of the US, we've seen major surges sort of in the summer, um, especially the late summer, and then in others, we've seen it more in the winter. But usually spring is sort of the time when we've seen sort of the, the lower cases across the US. Um, and so whereas we've seen BA2 surges in much of Europe during times of year when you might be expecting to see a surge anyway, the increasing prevalence of BA2 in the US is more coming along a time when we might expect to see cases declining anyway. So to sort of summarize that, I usually look at seasonality. I look at how much immunity we have both at baseline and to things that are related to the things that's circulating now. Um, and, then, um, and then the last thing to sort of measure, to sort of project severity overall in the population, number of deaths, number of hospitalizations, really the most important thing is the vaccination rate in the very oldest age groups, because those are the people who uh, still tend to be at highest risk of going to the hospital. So the higher our vaccination rates are in that age group, um, the better chance that we have of, of, of not having sort of major surges at our hospitals. Great, thank you. Thanks. Uh, next question. Thanks for doing this. So kind of piggybacking off of that last question, I've been talking to some folks right now, obviously Europe's getting hit hard by BA2 right now, but you know every country is having their own experience and sort of given that experience in Europe, what are you thinking as far as regional differences with how BA2 hits the US and which parts of the country are you more concerned about? I mean, I'm guessing it's it's those that may not have um, as much immunity either from, from vaccines or from exposure, but maybe you can kind of walk us through which, which states or region, regions you're most concerned about. Yeah, so actually, you know, in my mind, um, my, uh, I'm, in many ways, I'm sort of concerned about just about everywhere equally, um, but it's the timing of my concern that really changes. So here in the Northeast, we've, um, it's already the case that uh, at least among the, the, the viruses that we're sequencing, um, which is, we're sequencing quite a bit here now, um, most of them, so over 50% are BA2. Uh, and so it's often the case that once a variant passes that 50% mark, we really start to see what it's going to do. So we, if, if it's a more transmissible variant, we start to see an uptick in cases, for example. Um, and so in many ways, I think that it's going to be the coasts and especially the Northeast that are going to see what's going to happen from BA2 first. Um, but as has happened with most of the previous variants as well, um, really nowhere has been spared. It's really just been a matter of timing. Um, and so uh, I think that when it comes to, to trying to measure the relative severity of different places, um, a lot of the same things are still going to hold. So certainly if there's lower previous immunity, a place might fare worse. Um, if there's much higher population density or a higher concentration of older individuals, they may well fare worse. But none of this really differs from previous waves of SARS-CoV-2. And I think the biggest difference that we're going to see between places is maybe not so much the severity, but just the timing. Thank you. Uh, next question. 
Yeah, hi. Thanks for take, thanks for doing this and taking my question. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role of mathematical modeling in making predictions about the pandemic. Is it something that is most helpful in terms of identifying patterns that could lead to surges in the future or um, maybe identifying anomalies that could uh, indicate the emergence of a new variant? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I think there, there are a number of different ways that mathematical models have been used well, um, and plenty of ways that we've not used them as well as we would have liked as well during the pandemic. But, um, you know, I think that at their best, there are uh, really two main areas where models can be helpful. Um, the first is in making short term forecasts. So thinking about models as sort of the equivalent of um, of like weather forecasting tools, for example, where we're trying to make a prediction over the next couple of weeks, uh, what's going to happen in a specific community. Um, and th that can be really useful, especially for planning uh, very short-term responses. Um, so I think that those kinds of things are very helpful for uh, local policymakers, uh, for hospital administrators, for people who are trying to prepare capacity um, to, uh, to do contact tracing, to deal with an influx of patients, um, and so that's one area where models, I think, can be very useful. Um, but of course, those those forecasting models, as as with weather forecasts, you know, um, uh, uh, weather forecast for Connecticut is not going to be particularly useful for me sitting here in Massachusetts, and we're actually not that far away anyway. So, with those kinds of forecasts, they need to be very you know precisely tailored to the populations that they're dealing with, and that makes them a lot harder to sort of use broadly. So that brings in the second area where models can be really useful, which is as sort of these contingency modeling um, frameworks. So there's sort of these mechanisms for asking complex if-then statements. So you can say, if um, we vaccinate 10 more percent of our population, um, roughly how much do we expect the number of hospitalizations to decline in the next wave? So you can use mathematical models to sort of get these rough orders of magnitude estimates of how a certain policy change might affect the spread of an epidemic across an entire country, for example. Um, and then that allows us to compare different choices. Um, we oftentimes have different choices of what sorts of policies we might be able to enact. And we wanna make sure that we're using the ones that are going to be maximally effective while being um, minimally intrusive or minimally costly. And so mathematical models can be really good at that for just sort of trying to get a rough sense of which policies are the optimal ones in those kinds of scenarios. They won't give you as precise estimates because, again, we're sort of dealing with the entire um, epidemiological scenario and the location as a whole. It's sort of like the analog of climate modeling as opposed to weather modeling. So trying to understand what are the broad trends in um, the epidemiological climate over long periods of time. So models can be useful in both of those areas. I think it's really important not to confuse the two types of modeling because usually one doesn't behave well for the other purpose and vice versa. Um, but those are the two areas where they've contributed most during this pandemic. Are you all set? Okay. All set. Thank you very much. Thanks. Next question. Hi. Uh, I was wondering if you could expand um, just a little bit on the scenario you, you described of a sort of uh, permanent COVID season as opposed to flu seasons uh, in the fall. Like what that what that might look like. Is it public health departments on the county level or regional, you know, saying like, look out, we have COVID or how do you see that playing out? And also sort of how much confidence do you have in that uh, versus another sort of surprising variant like Omicron, which, you know, we've been told is genetically quite distinct from the other ones and sort of has screwed up our expectations somewhat uh, occurring now. Like, how much yeah. 
on the other hand, should I throw into the story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, every, everything in the kitchen sink, I guess. I mean, this this virus has um, managed to find a way to surprise us at every turn. Um, and so, you know, I, I think <laughs> with everything that I'm about to say, that's worth bearing in mind that there could be some new variant that emerges that's quite distantly related from anything that we've seen recently. Um, that, that really could change a lot of this. Um, and so, you know, that, that said, um, my sense is that with, um, you know, with, with this, this, gosh, that's, that's really such a uh, disheartening term, but the sort of a permanent COVID season, um, I mean, I do think that we're going to see substantial ebbs and flows in different places at different times. Um, one of the things that I didn't really get to talk about as much in some of the previous questions, but I think that does apply to them and to this is that um, you know, uh, we've been talking about seasonality and really seeing rises in cases during the winter months, but in, in a lot of places, especially in the southeastern United States, I think Florida, for example, in particular, we've actually seen a lot of spread during the summer, and I think that some of that could be down to just the time when people spend indoors. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we end up in a scenario where we actually have some kind of sort of opposite seasonality um, between different parts of the country, um, based on whether you're retreating indoors for air conditioning or for heat, um, because it really does seem like unmasked indoor interactions are um, far and away uh, the highest risk exposures for spreading SARS-CoV-2. So um, we may settle into a seasonal pattern that looks different in different parts of the country. Um, and then, you know, we're also going to have some of the sporadic variation that just depends on introductions and differences in immunity and differences in age groups that will change the timing of cases from place to place. So actually, you know, what, what you suggest is, is kind of what I envision is that over time, we, we may have sort of a COVID weather report um, that is just roughly tracking cases locally. Um, I think that that's going to be probably largely based on things like passive surveillance. So the number of people who are seeking outpatient care for respiratory viruses that turn out to be COVID, um, a lot of wastewater surveillance, for example, um, uh, because I think that the number of people who are sort of proactively going out to get tests is, is going to continue to decline for a while. Um, and then, you know, the, the last thing I think that's worth mentioning here is that we, in a lot of these discussions, we think a lot about policy changes and whether there's going to be sort of the political and individual will to change our behavior um, if cases do start to rise. And I think on that score, I'm actually a little bit more optimistic than some of the people I've spoken with lately. Um, in that for, for much of the pandemic, um, you know, we've had policies that have certainly changed the ways that people interact. Um, but it, it seems from a lot of the evidence that I've seen that um, oftentimes people also spontaneously change their behavior based on how much COVID is circulating in their community. Our, 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 our tolerance for COVID cases is probably going to increase as you know, people are increasingly immune to the virus, certainly. Um, but I think that in many ways, one of the best things that we can do to help manage continued outbreaks is to just... Um, continue informing people how much COVID is currently circulating in their community and make it you know, just as accessible as the weather report. Um, because uh, again, a lot of data suggests that people do tend to sort of adjust their behavior accordingly. Um, now, will that be enough to prevent major surges? Probably not. And then in the event of a new major variant, we will probably have to reevaluate things as well. Um, but as we continue to deal with COVID and we think about sort of this permanent circulation of COVID-19 in the population, I think that uh, recognizing that there's going to be different sorts of dynamics in different places, um, sort of different patterns of spread across the year, uh, the timing will look different. But because of that, 
making clear what's happening in any given community at any given time using passive surveillance is probably the best thing we can do right now. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, um, thank you for, uh, thank you for uh, taking my question. Um, uh, just about uh, the BA2, um, in some countries, uh, the increase of BA2 corresponds to the surge of cases. But in other countries, we are, uh, are not. And so uh, what do you think uh, uh, makes the difference such as behavior or uh, existing uh, immunity? And also I want to ask, uh, what is the uh, um, most uh, cost-effective or socially ac acceptable uh, policies to mitigate or uh, prevent uh, future surge? Thank you. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, so I, I think that, you know, um, we're, we're still trying to understand what exactly is causing a surge in BA2 in some countries versus not in others. I, I do think that it probably does come down mostly to uh, differences in behavior and differences in immunity. Um, one of the interesting things about this pandemic is that I think it's, it's bringing to the fore a lot of things that um, we've also known to be true about other infectious diseases. And so uh, in that, um, you can have pretty vastly different rates of transmission in different locations of very similar viruses. And they might be locations that uh, resemble one another fairly closely. So I'm thinking of the spread of um, the bacteria that causes um, uh, basically strep throat and um, other streptococcal bacteria uh, can look very different in the US and the UK. We have very different variants that spread at different times. Um, and it's not immediately clear why that's always the case. Um, it probably, again, comes down to differences in behavior and differences in immunity. So thinking about the SARS-CoV-2 case, I'm not terribly surprised that we're seeing very different scenarios in different countries, um, but I think the question is why. So the things that sort of come to the forefront of my mind is that in many places, including the United States, um, but certainly many other countries across the world, um, behavior really has changed pretty substantially since the start of the year. After we learned that, um, for people who are vaccinated and boosted or who've had um, multiple previous exposures to SARS-CoV-2, um, Omicron uh, does not seem to be as individually severe as, as Delta, for example. Now, of course, that's not true for people who have low levels of underlying immunity um, and where Omicron can still continue to be extremely severe. Um, and you know, Omicron is still a formidable virus, but because of the relative um, lower severity of Omicron relative to Delta for people who have a lot of previous exposures, I think people are changing their behavior. Um, and so we're seeing a lot more mixing that's leading to a lot of surges in some cases. And then I think that it may well be that the specific subvariant of Omicron that you were infected with prior to the BA2 surge may affect your immunity to the current surge as well. We're still sort of dealing with, we're sort of trying to disentangle some of that as well, but um, it, the amount of Omicron circulation that you've had, as well as the specific sub-lineages that circulated, may contribute to how, um, how much spread we see of BA2 as we go forward. So it really is, I think, a combination of behavior and, um, and immunity to the virus itself. I think it's worth noting that we have had introductions of BA2 to the United States and to many other countries um, for quite some time, and they're really only taking off now. And so what that suggests to me is that there really does have to be some behavioral element that allows BA2 to spread, that just the presence of BA2 is not enough to cause a major surge. Um, so all of that is to say, I can't really predict what's going to happen in any given location, but I think that there are, um, there are reasons that we're starting to disentangle for why we're starting to see very different experiences with BA2 in different places. 
Um, the last thing you asked about was, was sort of socially acceptable um, ways of, of mitigating the spread of the virus. And I think that all of the interventions that, um, that we've been thinking about for the last couple of years really hold here. Um, it seems like they're just as effective against BA2 as against the Omicron variant, um, you know, other sublineages of Omicron. So again, masking and distancing and moving encounters outside to the extent that we're able to seem to be among the best things that we can do. Thank you so much. Next question. Thanks for having me. Um, so this week or last week, the CDC put out a report that said that um, Black Americans were more were four times more likely to be hospitalized than white white Americans for COVID. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to um, any sort of factors that may have been behind that rate and what sort of measures can bring that ratio down. Yeah, thanks. So um, I I am I'm not an expert in in this area in sort of the the divisions, the demographic divisions, and especially the racial ethnic divisions in COVID nineteen severity. But it's true that over the course of the entire pandemic, um, uh, Black Americans in particular have have really um, uh, borne borne the brunt of this virus. Um, the the one area here that I can speak to is that um, earlier on in the pandemic. Um, my uh, the research group that I'm a part of uh, did a study to try to understand um, part of this of, of why uh, certain communities and we were looking in particular in New York City um, why certain communities that uh, tended to have much higher rates of hospitalization and death so you could imagine part of it might be due to intrinsic factors of higher rates of comorbidities which can absolutely be in play or um, it, at the, it now that we have the development of vaccines, um, it could be different rates of underlying immunity or different vaccination rates, although at that time vaccines were not available. So, so one thing is basically the risk of severe illness after getting infected. But the other is just the risk of getting infected in the first place. And one of the things that we found was that um, uh, one of the big drivers of the disparities that we saw in COVID-19 outcomes um, across geographic locations that actually map pretty closely with differences in racial ethnic groups um, was attributable to differences in infection rates. Um, so part of it was just due to the fact that um, Black Americans in particular were getting infected a lot more frequently, um, in large part because they were working in occupations that didn't allow them to protect themselves or that um, weren't providing them the means to get that protection. And so I would not be surprised if a lot of this difference is actually due to these sort of enduring structural issues um, that make it such that our um, that uh, that Black Americans in particular are uh, remain at higher risk of getting infected in the first place, and with those repeated exposures, there's sort of um, even the repeated exposures build up your immunity. Um, it also puts you at greater risk of getting infected. And each time you get infected, there is some risk of that infection being severe. Um, so I'm certain that there there are probably a lot of other factors that other people who are a lot well better versed in this field can speak to. But I do know that at least for certain parts of the pandemic a large part of this disparity is down to just who's getting infected. And so I think we can still go a long way towards um, reducing transmission of those population groups that are most vulnerable. Thank you. We do have some folks, I believe we could talk to you more in depth about that. So if you'd like to send me an email, I can connect you with those people. Awesome, thanks so much. Sure. Um, it looks like we don't have any other questions right now, but I have one that was uh, emailed to me. So if anybody's mulling things over, I'm going to ask this one and then we can get back to anybody else who may have a question. Um, uh, she said, should people be waiting on CDC guidance to get ahead of surges or 
uh, intimations of surges that seem to be happening now in other countries or start taking action now, like putting masks back on and giving up indoor dining? Uh, and is there enough sequencing going on to attribute rising rates to BA2 specifically? Right. Yeah, so I mean, I think that in my mind, the um, one of the things that the CDC can do well is to provide a sort of a national snapshot of what's happening with the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but as we were talking about before, there can be so much difference in the timing and severity of outbreaks in given locations that um, that for what an individual person in a specific community might need to do. Um, the CDC may not always be the best place to look for that. So I think that looking at more local surveillance platforms, um, many states and even many cities have uh, continue to maintain their SARS-CoV-2 dashboards. Um, and my hope is that those will continue um, so that people can get a sense of how much transmission is happening in their community. And in my mind, those are the sorts of things that will help us understand um, whether it makes sense to uh, to sort of start masking up again and um, and think about some of the other interventions that we've been talking about. Um, to be clear, I mean, I, I am still masking when I go to grocery stores and when I'm in places that are crowded where um, the absence of a mask would not really enhance my life very much. So generally having unmasked encounters with, with friends and such, but um, I don't really see the value of going to the grocery store while unmasked personally. And so I've just been keeping it on, especially as we're starting to face these rising cases of BA2 um, relative to other variants in the Northeast. So, um, so I think part of it too, is just trying to understand sort of what a person's uh, tolerance is for these kinds of um, interventions um, and recognizing that, uh, that every little bit helps. Um, so, so sort of that's, that's one side of things. Um, the other was, to what extent can we know how much BA2 is actually circulating? So um, here in the US, we've come actually a very long way in terms of how much sequencing we're doing. Um, so we have a much better sense of the breakdown of infections by variant. Um, and so at this point, we can actually be pretty confident that the many of the cases that we're starting to see across the US, and in fact, a majority of the cases that we're seeing in the Northeast and in some parts of California, um, are attributable to BA2. So um, BA2 is associated with the, um, some of the surges that we're seeing and some of the sort of prolongation of this tail of the Omicron wave that we're seeing. Um, although being associated with it is also a different question as to whether it's the sole cause of these increases in cases. And we've already spoken some about how behavior and previous immunity um, can also affect some of these things in some complex ways. But certainly it is true that BA2 is, um, the, the fraction of cases that are caused by BA2 is increasing and we have a very good sense of that across the US. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. Uh, sorry to double dip, but I thought I'd take advantage of how I had. Um, I was wondering, this month is the you know, two year anniversary of the pandemic declaration. And I was just wondering if you could say anything in a general way about how modeling has come along or what you've learned. Are you guys any better at this now? Uh, you know, and how? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we've, uh, we've learned a lot for sure um, about modeling over the course of the pandemic. Um, the, the single most important thing um, in my mind uh, that has happened um, for modeling during the pandemic uh, is that we've managed to break out of a lot of pre-existing silos and to begin working very closely um, with people in other related fields, um, but that previously we might not have seen as so related. So I'm thinking about 
economists and behavioral scientists and ethicists, um, all of whom we really, you know, could have in many ways should have been working with much more closely before the pandemic. Um, but now that work is a lot more integrated. And so that reflects in the models that we build because they are a lot more mindful of um, real human behavior. Um, we've managed to understand how people behave in the context of an epidemic much better. We've been able to account for those in our models. We've been able to account for not just the health impact, but also the economic impact of different interventions in models. And I think all of that has been really critical for making the models speak to the current moment. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that certainly the models have improved and that is really reflective of a broader collaboration amongst scientists and amongst stakeholders in the community as well, um, that have helped to make the models a lot more comprehensive, a lot more accurate, um, and ultimately a lot more relevant to the societies that they're aiming to serve. And, and is it fair to say that, uh, understand that understanding of human behavior is one of the key things that come out of, you know, our experience here that. You know, the models did look, the ones I saw back in March 2020 were these sort of tinker toy, you know, are not of this, you know, gives you this line, but, but that really wasn't taking into account how many people by their mobile phone usage actually stopped going to the mall, which sounds like the kind of thing you're talking about now, that, that role of human behavior in shaping the course of the pandemic. Yes, exactly. You know, and a lot of the models early in the pandemic were, you know, much of that simplicity was just driven by the lack of data at that point. Um, where you know we just hadn't really been able to observe how people would respond to the pandemic for long enough at that point but but you're right i mean i think i think the biggest thing really you know to distill all of that is is this greater appreciation and this greater ability to think about human behavior um in a much more nuanced way thank you very much yeah all right and does anybody else have a question Sorry, I'll just get one more in here if we're, if we're out of questions. So a question that I have sort of is about this pre-built up sort of immunity that, that we've talked about. And you know that you were probably likely to get some protection from, from the most recent Omicron wave, but like, do, do we know how much a, like a Delta infection from like last July would protect someone now? Or is there sort of like a lot of like what are sort of the, the knowns versus unknowns in, in sort of that population level immunity? Right. Yeah, so um, there, <clears throat> there are more unknowns than knowns for sure um, because there's so many different, um, uh, it, different ways that a person could have acquired their immunity. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's not very, very well documented. Um, so have a decent sense of who's been vaccinated with what and when. Um, but when it comes to previous infections, it's really hard to know um, whether a person got infected, when that infection occurred, and what it was with. Um, and so that, that really does complicate things. But sort of from a broader perspective, um, one of the things that seems to be the case is that um, repeated exposures to SARS-CoV-2, um, especially through vaccination, but also through previous infection, um, enhance your immunity. And they enhance not only the amount of immunity that you have, but also the breadth of the immunity that you have. So your ability to identify other sorts of viruses. This is one of the reasons why the booster was so important uh, for the Omicron wave is that um, getting that booster basically, even though it was exposing your immune system to something that looked like the original SARS-CoV-2 variant um, from back in March, April of 2020, nevertheless, that additional exposure sort of helped your immune system to see other parts of the viral spike that it may not have caught on the first time around broadens its immune response and it allows it to better recognize something like Omicron, even though it hasn't seen it before. 
So my sense is that something like a, a previous Delta infection would do something similar to that. Um, I think that Omicron is about as different from Delta. Um, it, you know, De Delta and Omicron are, differ pretty substantially, but nevertheless, everything that I've seen is that um, the, the closer, the better in terms of exposure and immunity, but still very distant things can give you quite a bit of immunity, um, cross immunity that, uh, to, to variants that are fairly different from one another. All of that is, is made more complicated by the fact that immunity does also seem to wane over time. So a Delta infection um, from last year, for example, would have boosted your immunity to Omicron currently, um, but it's also been declining. So a Delta infection, I don't know, from November of last year would probably provide you more immunity than a Delta infection from earlier in the year. Um, so there are all of these different forces moving in different directions. But I think the most important thing here is that uh, so far from what we can tell, um, any immunity against SARS-CoV-2 helps your immunity against any SARS-CoV-2 that you're exposed to. Um, and that immunity declines over time. And the closer the thing is that you've been exposed to that you're trying to face it next is better. Like the, the similarity is good, but distance is not necessarily really bad. Does that help? <laughs> yes, it does. Thank you. Thanks. Right. Uh, do we have any other questions out there? Yes, I have a question about vaccines. There have been some reports about the impressive durability of the J&J &J vaccine, even though it's no longer uh, recommended by the CDC here in the United States. Do you have any sense of why the durability might be better for that particular vaccine? Um, since you were just speaking about the durability of protection from natural infection. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't, and this is this would this would be a a question for an immunologist. Um, I've seen I've seen that data as well, and it does seem that there is some enhanced durability. Um, and uh, my sense is that it probably just has to do with the way the immune system interacts with the specific thing that it's been exposed to. Um, certainly, J and J uses a different vaccine platform, um, and. Uh, because of that, maybe the immune system just gets triggered in a different way or different arms of the immune system get triggered. Um, and uh, there are different parts of the immune system that lead to different durations of immunity. Um, so really when we're training our immune system against the virus by vaccination, we're really trying to train this, um, you know, I sort of see our immune system as this sort of uh, very complex thing that has a lot of different agents that act in our, uh, you know, that act to, to clear viruses in a lot of different ways. Um, and some vaccines are really good at sort of exciting one part of the immune response, but they don't really do much to a different part of the immune response and vice versa. Um, so I think it really just comes down to that balance of the response of which parts of the immune system got triggered by the vaccine. And it's a really difficult thing to tell from the outset um, in initial vaccine trials. Um, because our understanding of the immune system is still uh, very much, um, you know, we, we know a lot, but there's a lot left to learn. Um, but I think that's probably the best I can do. And maybe uh, referring you to an immunologist would be the next thing. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Um, looks like maybe not. Uh, Dr. Kissler, do you have any final thoughts for us? Um, no, I think uh, you've sapped just about all my information today. So thanks. <laughs> this concludes the March 23rd press conference.